Hello, everybody. Before we start today's episode, I am so excited to announce that we officially have a new sponsor of Simply Finance with Shane White, and that is Routine. Um, I actually had one of the founders of Routine on the podcast as one of my early on founder series episodes uh, back in 2020. And um, they are now officially the sponsor of Simply Finance with Shane White. So, so excited to announce them to all of you. Uh, Routine was founded by a husband and wife with one simple goal, establish healthy routines for healthy lifestyles. The founders tried a lot of hydration and wellness supplements and found that most are full of sugar, synthetic ingredients, and were also made overseas in uncontrolled environments and didn't accomplish what they claimed to do. Instead of, in running in, sorry, instead of reinventing the wheel, uh, Routine looked to time-tested natural ingredients that generations of parents have trusted. They focused on creating products that keep those natural ingredients whole but make them more convenient for our modern, busy lives. Their newest product is called Mo- Morning Routine. Um, just so you know, when we sleep, we lose around a pound to a pound and a half of water, expelling vapors, sweat, etc., each packet of morning routine, which they come in a single serve packet, little tear away packet you dump in water. Each packet contains half an organic lemon, one tablespoon of apple cider vinegar, and Himalayan sea salt. This combination has all six essential electrolytes and most importantly, no sugar. As I mentioned, it's just a one uh, serving tear packet that you dump in around 20 ounces of water. Um, they suggest you start your day with this. That's why it's called morning routine. And as always, routine is made up of trusted ingredients made convenient. The link to routine is in the show notes. If you want to just go and find that, click, and it'll take you to their website. Or you can go to yourroutine.com. And as an offer from routine to all of my listeners, if you'd like to get 30%, which is a huge discount to start off, 30% off your first order at yourroutine.com. Or again, link in the show notes. At checkout, use code ShaneWhite30 to get 30% off. All right, everybody. Hope you guys check out Routine. Um, you know, as you all know, I normally always share with you guys brands, um, products that I'm passionate about. Um, you know, I've talked about Robinhood, talked about Whoop in the past, and Routine is no different. Um, I do believe in what they're building. I love their products. Uh, morning Routine um, has been something that I've been taking and have seen great results. I honestly just feel more energized. Um, I feel more hydrated, if that makes sense. Like I really do. Um, and so I think you guys will love the product. And as always, like I said, um, if you use Shane White 30, you can get 30% off your first order. So it's a great way to try out the product and see if it's something that you can enjoy. All right, everybody. The next episode is up right after this. And our next guest is Matt Perry of The Good Crisp Company. He is the CEO and founder, and this is Founder Series number 23. Uh, I hope you guys love this episode. It was great to get to know Matt a little more, learn about his story, um, and it's, it's a fun story. He's, uh, he's definitely you know built this business in a way that it's a little unconventional, and it's been very successful for them. They're really revolutionizing this type of product in this part of the grocery store, this type of food. Um, I think you guys will love it. And if you want to try it after listening to this episode, you can go to the goodcrispcompany.com. The link is in the show notes, but they're offering listeners to sim- uh, Shane or Simply Finance with Shane White um, 50% off if you use the code word crunch at checkout. So check them out. And without further ado, right up after this, Matt Perry. All right, everybody. Well, we're live with Matt Perry from the Good Crisp Company. Matt, thanks for joining the show. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Do you mind uh, giving the listeners just a little, you know, intro to yourself, the brand, and just uh, yeah, like kind of the elevator pitch. Definitely. So, uh, as you can hear, I'm originally from Australia. Moved to the U.S. with my my wife and my three daughters. Actually, two two years to the day today. It just came oh, up on my cool. phone as a photo, as a, as a reminder. So. 
moved here two years ago to focus on on growing our business, which is the Good Crisp Company. Um, we are a you know shorthand version and essentially a better for you alternative to Pringles and and to other canister chips. So we're in the can. We look look like that. We taste actually better, but uh, we take all of the the nasty stuff out. So we're non-GMO. We're gluten free. We're all natural flavors and ingredients and those sort of things. Um, and we're sold just under 10,000 grocery stores across the country from national with uh, Whole Foods, Walmart, CVS, a lot of places like that um, and continuing to, to grow. Yeah, no, that's awesome, man. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, the first time I saw your product, I the, the, originally it's exactly what I thought of. It reminded me, obviously, you know, I've spent a long time at RX Bar. So it reminded me just of the same thing that Peter and Jared did when they, you know, saw protein bars filled with shit and they were like, we should make one that's not. So that's exactly what you guys did. Do you mind, you know, I would love to go back and understand um, that just the beginning, like how you, I don't know if chips were a big, you know, thing of yours you're into or like how you came about, you know, starting this. Yeah, definitely. So it was about um, seven or eight years ago when I first started the the business back in, in Australia. And my background is in CPG. I um, had a was part of a company. We we imported snack brands and other food products out of Asia and things like that, and sold them into the Australian market. So I'd always been in in food and CPG and launching other people's brands, and always wanted to to do my own thing, but was just waiting for that sort of you know an idea or something that came across that I felt confident enough to really go all in on. Um, so. Where it happened for me is I'm a massive salty snack guy. I love love potato chips. Um, and then I was on a gluten-free diet, really trying to clean up what I was eating. I have some food intolerances, things like that. So started really for the, even though I'd been in natural food, probably for the first time, started actually looking at what I was putting in my body, what I was uh, eating, and then particularly what I was giving my kids as well. I, um, I mentioned I've got three young daughters, and and obviously they eat a ton of Pringles and a ton of chips. Is yeah. sort of is, is the case with kids; they're forever snacking. And we thought, look, we we don't want them to stop eating. Like we want them to eat and continue to sort of grow, but we've really got to think about what what we've given them. So you know, I was eating a lot of healthier food, but they just weren't they weren't eating that. They didn't have the same kids don't have the same sort of um, cognitive process that yes this doesn't taste good but at least right. it's good for me that that doesn't work with kids so this idea of how do I like a lot of people how, how do I sort of find a balance between those two things and, and find something that looks the same they're happy to eat it with their friends they wouldn't really know but I as a parent feel good giving it to them and things so I had some contacts in the industry there's there's not many people literally in the world that, that make canister chips and I was sort of knew some people and was able to sort of work and develop and use my experience to, to come up with a product that, that we could then start to sell. Got it. No, I love that. Did you, um, like, how did you, what was your like step one? I love doing this like breakdown of like going sure. from zero to one. Cause like, I mean, sure. I'm sure tons of people have been like, Oh, I wish I could have a, you know, Pringles can that was not so shitty for me. I would love to have something yep. healthier. How did you, you know, what was like step one? Yeah, hundred percent. It's not a revolutionary idea for sure. Like so, as you said, I'm sure heaps of people did it. So, so how are we able to bring it to life? I think the difference for me was um, the context that I had. As I said, you know, probably most people had googled a healthy Pringle or how do I make Pringles, and quickly realised, oh my goodness, this isn't like a a bar product or something that I can you know make in my kitchen and sort of right. develop and take it to the market and start like that how a lot of you know peanut butters or whatever start like that this isn't that type of product this is you know really specialized machinery really high volumes all of those things like that so i was just sort of to, to be frank at the right place at the right time with with some contacts that i could say hey i've been working with you guys i've done a lot of business in australia for you i've got this idea um, you know, and, and was able to sort of convince them and, and, and sort of to take a chance on me and, and they let me use their R&D teams to start to develop and say, hey, I want something that, you know, is gluten free, doesn't have GMO, we need to take this out, but, you know, it needs to taste good. That's the most important thing there. And so we did a lot of back and forth and a lot of trials and, and they were really uh, patient with me to sort of develop something. Wow. Yeah, that's really cool. Did you... Um... So yeah, to your point, like it's not something you could just like cook up in your kitchen. So how did you, how did you start? You worked with the R and D team. Did you have to, did you like actually go and, you know, work at a commercial kitchen in Australia at first or something? Yeah. Well, that product actually, uh, even to this day is, is made in Malaysia. 
So there's oh, okay. there, just to add to the international flair to it. So, um, yeah, there's no one in Australia that makes it. There's not really any good people in America that make it. So, you know, we, we had to sort of go elsewhere. And, and, and this is sort of the contact that I had. So they're, they're one of the, the, the best in the world as, as, as far as I can tell. And I've, I've tried a lot of product over the years. So um, I was fortunate to really, as I say, be with, with, with a great partner there. So, but yes, a lot of trips up to Malaysia, a lot of working with them there. And then also getting the trait, what they thought tasted good with the different profiles between countries was, was a challenge as well. Um, but you know they they believed in the idea and, and what we wanted to do and could see the potential of it and were prepared to work with me. Wow, yeah, that's I mean that's wild, man. I, I haven't heard of too many founders on here that are making products in a different country and, and bringing it in. That's definitely not a you know a normal thing you hear of a founding stories in the U.S. So that's pretty wild. Yeah, it makes for a lot. So we're we're now I mean between sort of bringing over fifteen containers a month now into the wow. the US here into Australia and, and Canada as well. So it makes things definitely difficult, particularly in this COVID environment, logistically wise and oh, things yeah. like that. But um, as I said, we think we've got a great product, and, and that's what separates us. So yeah. we're, we're committed to it. No, that's awesome. I know uh, it's funny. In my time at RX, I. I was help. I was like the finance person for our export business that we launched. So I've kind of done sure. the opposite, trying to get the bars in containers over to Australia. So <laughs> I have some empathy for that process with you. <laughs> yeah, um, not, not as easy as, as you would think. Yeah, <laughs> the I'm sure. number of things that can go wrong. Right. Yeah. No, it's amazing. Like what that takes to get a product, for, you know, over the Pacific Ocean and keep it fresh and, and good to yep. go. What is like? What's like the shelf life? Of yeah, yeah. so we get it here with, with 12 months life on it still. So that's, oh, nice. that's one of the things that makes this, this possible as well. The canister is, is great for the aesthetically, but also sort of having something in a thick sort of tube like that all sealed up uh, does wonders for shelf life as well. Yeah, that makes sense. Is there, um, I think for most people listening, I'm assuming people would love to know without, you know, going to your website or looking this up, just like, what is in your product like that's healthy? Like what's it made up of, I guess, like the ingredient yep. makeups, like a high level overview. And then like, how different is that from, you know, what's currently on the market? Definitely. So, I mean, the product is essentially made up of, so we use potato, um, as silly as that sounds, that's actually quite a, a difference right there. So um, we don't use flour. So, so people say to us, well, why are you making such a big deal about gluten-free? All potato chips are gluten-free. Um, but Pringles and other companies put flour and fillers and things like that that in their products. So they're definitely not uh, gluten-free. So, oh, so they, it is actually, yeah. And if you weren't a, a celiac or someone like that, you probably wouldn't know. But um, the, there's nothing there. So we just use straight potato. Um, and it's it's not like a potato chip, which is a carved up potato and you fry it. Um, this is actually obviously to get that consistent shape and the novelty factor. We use a potato flake or like a potato paste that's sort of molded um, into that shape and fried in that shape and things like that. So we do that. We use um, all sustainable RSPO palm oil on our, on our product. Um, and then we sort of use essentially flavoring um, that we sort of put on the natural flavoring. So they're basically the core things that are in our product. So what's the difference there? As I said, a lot of it is the stuff that we actually take out. So we, as I said, we don't use anything artificial in, in there. We make sure all, all of our ingredients are non-GMO certified. We make sure they're certified gluten-free as well. We make sure that, you know, we have all of our certifications in place for the factory and, and ethical sourcing and SEDEX and all of those things as well to ensure that we're doing all the right things by our employees and by our suppliers as well. Then on the, um, on the nutritional side of things, the, to, to be frank, there are differences. We try and reduce our sugar and salt and things like that, but it's, it's not our major focus of, of this product. When it comes to sort of creating product, you can you can there's different ways you can you can do things. And in my experience, and certainly with a product that's very technical like this, once we start playing around with how it's cooked or the, the, some of the, the the technical sides of it, you really start to lose a lot of the taste and a lot of the crunch and a lot of the feel. Mm. Um, so I've made the conscious choice to say, look, we want this to be as close to the original to some degree. To use that term. Um, as, as possible um, to keep with our sort of the whole reason why I started this, which is sort of that, you know, a familiar form, something comfortable that kids want to eat, but still tastes good. And, and for us, that's core. So when I look at what are the three pillars that make up the Good Chris company, we say we're good taste and, that, and then good ingredients and then good vibes. And yeah. we've actually spent a lot of time around that in that order. 
Um, and I feel very comfortable and we've owned it to say actually good taste does actually come before good ingredients. So, and that's similar with around nutritional panel and things like that, that taste is our number one factor. This needs to taste good. We're a snack company. People eat us because they want relief, because they want a little bit of enjoyment, because they they want to have a treat themselves with a snack. So unless it tastes good, none of those emotional reasons of why you're eating us matter, regardless of what the, the, the ingredients say. So that's first and foremost. Then we say, okay, how do we still keep in the good taste? Try and make this as good ingredients as we can. And, and we're frank, that's a that's an ongoing process and we continually evolve that. We have core things that we won't change, like non-GMO, like gluten-free, like you know, all natural, things like that. They have to have that. But can we continually try and evolve and, and make our products and cleaner and things as well without sacrificing taste? And then the third part, the good vibes is Yes, it's what we do. So we give back 5% of everything we sell to childhood uh, cancer research, things like that, but also just about the emotional connection around you can pick this up, you can eat it, you can feel good as a parent giving it to your kids, they can feel good eating it because they don't feel left out or things like that. And, and that's important to us as well. So they're sort of the three things that, that tie our product together. Yeah, no, I love that. Um, I, you know, that's something I think sometimes goes overlooked when it comes to like healthier or better for you brands is taste. Like it's gotta be good food. It's gotta taste good. Um, it, it, for sure. And sometimes you can get really caught up into the, you know, this is why we're doing it or this nutritional value or whatever and things like that. And you can start to, to and uh, I mean, I'm not saying we don't do it. it. It's just, it's just a reality. You get really into the weeds of it all and all of this. And, and you sort of forget to step back and say, hang on, what is a consumer coming in without all this experience and understanding what do they think and things like that. And so it is actually surprisingly easy to do to, to forget about the taste. Yeah, no, I mean, totally makes sense. And I think it's really cool that you guys give back. Uh, definitely resonate with that. You know, I've lost a friend uh, to cancer and I know childhood cancer is a horrible thing. So that's really cool. Yep. Do you, um, do, do you think, um, how do I want to frame this? I've asked this before. I think it's really interesting, especially for products like yours. Um, why do you think, you know, big chip companies haven't tried to do something similar? You know what I mean? I think, I think yep. it's, it's, it's interesting because the, the better for you category is, you know, across different categories is I feel like exploding with so many cool young startup brands that are trying to do what you're doing in other categories. Have you ever thought about it or, I mean, you, you've been closer to it, so I don't know. Definitely. I mean, we do with our strategic sort of analysis of, Hey, what, what does this all look like? And, and I mean, if we look at say someone like Pringles, who's a sort of, we don't see ourselves as a big competitor with them. We're totally different consumers and things like that. But just, just on the form factor, if we take that perspective, I mean, they're a, they're a billion dollar, uh, and that's not billion dollar valuation. That's billion dollar sales right. of, of Pringles just in, in, in the US. So, you know, whilst we're, we're growing and all of those things, we're still very, very small. We're, we're sort of percentages, you know, compared to what they're doing. And so they, they have things that, um, you know, you look and say, hey, I could open up and sell more in China or India or something like that, you know, and make another sort of, 500 million or I could try and sort of retrofit all of my machinery and do all these things and lose all my efficiencies and all those things to, to sort of cater to, to our consumer. And so, you know, it, it's just not a, you know, and I don't know all of the ins and outs, obviously, but talking to, to other brands and other sort of chip companies, it, it's more around, hey, we, we do one sort of thing. We do it really well here in the US. There's still a massive customer for, you know, a Pringles for a Lay's, all of those things like that. And so sort of looking through their lens, you can sort of understand a bit more about, you know, we don't, we're not going to make those sacrifices necessarily to go after something when, you know, to, to some degree, they see if it's not broke, don't fix it. Whilst yeah. we coming from the other things that think, say, hey, there's this huge market here for us that, that we can tap into this sort of um, area where no one's playing at the moment. Right. Got it. Yeah, I know. I always think like, you know, I've been on the other side too. I've worked at big companies and it's, it's probably also, they see the, the amount of time, energy, and money it'll take to develop a product like that. And they think like, oh, I could launch a, you know, a new flavor of this billion dollar product, or I could try to, you know, break into a whole new part of the category, which could undermine. Yeah. So that makes sense. Yep. Totally makes sense. Um, I, I thought it was interesting too. I was reading about your story a little more and I found that um, you obviously you're from Australia your product is from that general area of the world too. How did you guys like 
was there a plan early on that you wanted to like really grow the business in the US? And then I know the answer to this, but I'm sure people will be interested. You're not in Australia anymore. So I would love to hear that kind of story and what drew you to the US. Yeah. So like, like all young entrepreneurial business, we didn't have any plans or anything like that. So we're, and we still do fly by the seat of our pants a little bit there. So, I mean, I'd love to say this was all part of some master plan of getting over to the US, but, but no, um, it's sort of, just, just evolved that way. Sort of, we, we had the opportunity. Um, you know, we, we were struggling a little bit to, to grow in, in the US, to be frank. Sorry, in Australia, there's, um, you know, only two grocery chains over there. There's a lot of, lot of competition. Um, so we're sort of struggling to, to find a spot. We're, actually, we are, we are still in Australia. We, we, we still sell there now still to this day. Awesome. And we're still, yeah, we've actually cracked one of the, the supermarkets there. So we're, it is definitely growing there. But um, at the time, sort of, yeah, so look, maybe there's some other opportunities. I used to come to Expo West to have a look around and see oh, products yeah. anyway. So I was familiar with the trade show. And I thought, do you know what? Why don't I just, you know, book a, book a table. I think I got like the last table that was left in some off room somewhere in one of those dodgy little yeah. holes somewhere. And it probably still cost you an arm and a leg, I'm sure. Correct, absolutely. <laughs> Particularly because I was, and I said, look, let's just take some product. I'll mock up some packaging. We'll wrap it up. I had to take it all with me sort of on the plane. Oh, um, yeah. just, just put it out there on, on the table and, and just, just see what people think. Maybe there's an opportunity sort of in the US and, and that's where it sort of sprung and it sort of snowballed a bit from there. But it was just more of a, hey, let's try, like what's the worst that can happen? You know, we spend five or six grand trying this. I, I get a fun trip in the US and, and we'll be on our way sort of thing. Oh, isn't that funny? I love that. No, I, I think that entrepreneurial journey is like so important for people to understand too, who maybe want to have aspirations of, of being an entrepreneur. There's, there's something to be said about just like jumping and taking the risk and trying it out and, and figuring it out afterwards. <laughs> hundred percent. We always used to say, um, you know, we don't want to, I don't want to die wondering, like if we're, if we're serious about this, like what with that attitude and then what, what's the worst can happen? What, what's the downside here? You know, like that's what we said, it's five, 600 grand investment to just go over and see and try it. Um, and then everything is sort of somewhat as we develop things um, sort of staged and gated process. Okay, great. We seems like we got a lot of feedback. Okay. Let's go and develop some products and some standards and come back next year and, and see what we can. So sort of there's a next little step there, but still not a huge investment. And it's, okay, well, we've got one or two brokers that want to take us on. Let's try it. Let's develop something, do it over there. Once again, it's not a huge, and sort of, you know, it's not like we said, right, let's go into Walmart nationally day one and go from sure. there sort of thing. So, you know, step by step, you sort of, you work your way up. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I mean, I, I'm assuming, you know, people listening to this might think, um, that sounds like that sounds expensive, especially if you're like over in Australia and you're trying to launch a product here to kind of throw a finance kind of question at you was yep. your philosophy early on. Did you guys, you know, were you looking to bootstrap this? Did you guys raise money early on? How did you guys fund the beginning of this business? Cause I, I know in, in general yep. terms, it might not have been super expensive, but for just the average Joe, that might've been, you know, might be tough to get off the ground. <laughs> True, and that, that that's a, that's a really good point, Shane. And I think we were fortunate that that I had this this other business, my uh, importing and selling business that we were sort of doing. We were able to sort of draw some of the funds out of that to help sort of um, do do what, what we were doing. So we we're always fortunate in, in that regard that the other partners in that company sort of could see what I wanted to do and, and were prepared to invest and, and help launch, launch the product. So we, we were fortunate that, excuse me, that we had some resources there that, that we can dwell on. Um, so we were always going to bootstrap this company. And to some degree, that's it, the Australian marketplace and CPG is very different to the US. We don't have VCs and angels sort of running around just throwing <laughs> checkbooks and money at, at things and, and none of those expectations for some, for some degree. Um, so it was sort of wasn't really, didn't even occur to us to sort of doing, you know, get VC funding or things like that. So we went down this path of sort of, you know, drawing money out and to some degree almost bleeding dry our, our other company to sort of keep this, the, the chips going as, as you're very well aware yeah. it's incredibly expensive to, to get into cpg and, and right. food in, in the u.s it's a huge barrier um and so that's why we quickly realized why this whole world of vc funding and all of this ex existed um and it was it was a lot of um going back and forth between me and the other co-founders uh, co-founders when we looked at this of hey 
do we keep doing what we're trying to do? We never wanted to take on funding. We never said we sort of would. Not, not that we were passionately against it. It was just, it wasn't really an option. We didn't really build it for that way versus, hey, we really think we've got something here. Should we be trying to put the pedal to the metal, try and go hard and take opportunity of something, in which case we'll need those funds to do it. And, and it took us a little while of going back and forth before we made the decision to say, look, We've got a great uh, funding partner in, in Circle Up was one of the original funds that, that, that invested us right from the start and we were able to take some funds and, and to sort of start to build from there. Awesome. Yeah. No, I, it's, uh, I think people, I didn't understand it until I was, you know, in this world, just how expensive it can be to get on shelf, especially in, in major distribution points. Uh, it's remarkable, really. Um is it how did you guys like when you when you cracked into the US? I mean, I, I I have um you know lots of questions, but I would love to know like what was your plan from a distribution standpoint? Like you mentioned where you're at. Was that like yep. your goal or did you go through online first? I uh, would love to know just like how you guys kind of started it up and how you how yep. you grew. And so for this one we did have a master plan right, and then it know. and then it, and then it all fell over. But at least we came in <laughs> with the plan this time, right? So it's all right, well let's We've gone through some of those stages. We think there's an opportunity here. Let's do this. So our first retailer was uh, Whole Foods, Northern California. So we had about that 40 was your first sales. retailer. Yeah, that, oh, that, that wow. was it. That was our fourth one. So this is what I mean, Charles. So we sort of had these things to say, look, you know, this is amazing. We should take this opportunity. And so we sort of everything we've done, we've felt confident taking that next step because we've been very fortunate in that regard. Um, so yeah, so we thought, right, we've got we've got Whole Foods. Let's start there, and then. The other way you've got to be mindful as well is the differences between Australia and, and the US. So even though Australia is physically the same size as the US, we only have 25 million people. So wow, there's yeah. more people in California than the whole of Australia. So that was our That's attitude crazy, going, right? exactly going into this was, you know what, let's just try, once again, downside, let, let's just try and get California. If we can just sell into California, we could double our business. It's like another whole Australia there. That's all we're interested in. So we just started off, we got um, Northern Whole Foods on California, got a broker, then started to fill in around that and, and do those things there in California. And, and that plan was starting to work well and we're getting all the independents up there. And then I got a call from Wegmans to say, hey, we, we love your product. Uh, I'd love to put it in all of my, my stores. So wow. what do you do, right? You've got yeah. this plan of, no, we're going to start in California and just do this. Well, sorry not to cut you off, but at this yeah. point, are you still in Australia? I'm assuming. It's like you're. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. So so we, yes, yeah, so this is all being imported. We were use. I was running it from Australia up until two years ago. I was still yeah. running it from Australia. So for the first three years, it was I was running it out of Australia. Um, we had using brokers, and then we sort of after a year, we hired our first employee, and and then went from there. So um, yeah, so we we're running it from Australia. We had some help there. Um, and, and so we, we made the decision that, you know, let's, let's throw the plan out. Let's, let's go <laughs> over, to, over to Wegman. Um, we think this is a good opportunity. We'll start there. So suddenly now we're on both sides of the country and we're sort yeah. of trying to go from there. It, I, the quite, sorry. Another question that's like popped sure. in my head as you were explaining that. I think for people who, you know, not worked for a, maybe a CPG brand before, what was it like? from like an inventory perspective because i think most people have no idea like what a yep. what a you know getting an account like that can do to your inventory and just like you know the, the number one the expenses and then just like preparing and planning and having it ready to go for a whole foods let alone a whole foods and then and wagmans so yeah. can you maybe just it, explain to people that process i think i think people would really resonate with that sure it, and it, it's one of the major expenses that even to this day, to be frank, we have a lot of capital tied up in, in inventory. And it's something we've chosen particularly at the moment to to invest in because of uncertainty around supply chain and even spikes in demand and all of those things like that. So that was one of the things that was drilled into me early on when I spoke to people in the US was do not go out of stock. Retailers will never forgive you if you're out of stock and all of this. So that was like my number one thought. So we, you know, and we were ordering in by full container loads and things like that as well. So it wasn't like we could go to a local co-packer and say, hey, run us off to pallets or something like that. Yeah. I was ordering by literally the thousands of cases at, at a time. It's 5,000 cases in a container. So that was yeah, sort of um, a, a lot of products. So that's that's also what quickly made us realize we needed funding. So um, yeah, it was, it was a big deal. So it's not only where I need to have the inventory, um, we've got, you know, 60 day lead times that was at that time we did. So 30 days 
for our, for our co-packer to make it, 30 days to ship it to the US from Malaysia. Then we've got to sit on, you know, 30 days worth of inventory to sort of make sure that we're covered. So we're planning out 90 days of what a retailer is going to look like that we've never sold a single product into, but I have to place orders now to sort of fulfill that. Um, so it, it was a huge amount of logistical issues that we had to do, cash issues, cash cycle as well, because yeah. I'm ordering now and I'm selling it. And as you know, these guys aren't <laughs> going to pay me for 40 days. The other part of it was um, I hadn't banked a check in my life until I moved. I didn't have a checkbook till I moved to right. America. No, I've never heard a check. Everything's done electronically, all of this. It was one of the big things that surprised me how no disrespect, but how backward the banking yeah. system to some degree is here in, in, in the US. And so Definitely. we didn't have any employees in America. I'm in Australia and UF, UNFI saying, Matt, we've got a check for you. What would you like me to do with it? And I, <laughs> I, I don't. So I like put a an paper? ad. What do you mean? Yeah, yeah. I put an ad on Craigslist to say, I need someone to pick up a check and go down to my bank and bank no this check. Way. Like that is the dodgiest thing in the world. Thankfully, it worked, it worked. out. It worked out and, and this nice lady in, in LA for uh, about 12 months would go and pick up our checks and, and bank, them, bank them for us. Um, That's an totally amazing random story. So, that is amazing. You know, these are things you had to, to, to deal with. So we're working through that. I mean, on a, just on a um, sort of inventory side, when we launched into, into Walmart, uh, two years ago, we, we picked up or well, three years. It was a, it was a national launch. We weren't expecting that, but we were going to 4,000 stores. Wow. And so they were telling us, yes, you're approved. Everything's fine. Uh, the reset date is, you know, February or something like that. But because of these lead times, I had to place a PO with my manufacturer and ship it out before I ever even got a confirmed purchase order from Walmart. Um, which is Whoa, like that's the big I, no-no because retailers are yeah. notoriously f- uh, finicky and things like that. So once again, I had to order, you know, a quarter of a million dollars, a couple of containers worth of inventory in the hope that the Walmart buyer would keep their word and say what they did and, and will eventually send us a, a physical PO. So there's been a lot of those oh, sort of um, freight issues and, and, and uh, logistical issues that have, that have been tricky. Yeah, I, I mean, I have, I have total empathy for you because I've been on, like I said, the flip side of getting things out of this country. But for you, I mean, for people listening, that's you, you would have to place a P, you'd have to basically place an order with your manufacturer. I'm sure there's weeks and weeks of lead time there, yep. at least probably. Then you got to get it on a container, ship it all the way across the Pacific Ocean, get it imported, which can take time or it can get stopped. Yep. And then you got to get it to a retailer and then once the retailer you know has it then yeah then you know if people don't know i mean like they don't it's not like they pay you once the product shows up they have depending on your terms they can have up to you know two three months to pay you back especially like walmart yep walmart always pushes for high terms so um you're talking like months of you have to pay something up front versus getting money back that's that's tough that's wild to think that those were like some of your like those are major major i mean they're the biggest retailers in the u.s that you're talking about that you guys were starting with <laughs> yeah that's i mean we've been very very fortunate in, in that regard and that's what's given me you know the confidence even this to move my family over to the u.s and sure. to keep doing this i mean i've had experiences Australia launching i've launched over 20 brands sort of and tried to bring them to australia so i've had a bit of experience seeing it and i've seen and, and and just because something works doesn't mean it always works for things. But I think things that have worked, things that haven't. But one of the things that this really showed to, to me and to us that we had something here was just the reception we got from, from retailers. So within 12 months, our first 12 months, we had opened up every UNFI and KEHI DC across wow. the country. We had retailers ringing us and saying, yep, we want to put this product in. And then when I compare that to Australia where – we couldn't even get on the phone to a retailer. We couldn't even get a meeting with our buyer yeah. or anything like that. And and here we were in the US sort of buyers reaching out to us. I just never even saw that. So we thought, look, this is really fortunate. We Not all brands, not all products get this. And, and so we need to really keep sort of doubling down on, on what we're experiencing. Uh, totally. So explain that maybe for people too. Because I mean, from at least my understanding, tell me if I'm wrong. We hear, at least from like the brands I work for, we've always considered Australia, you know, you guys are Australians are predominantly are healthy. They're, they're into the better for you wellness brands. If that's the case, what, what do you think the differentiator was in the U S like 
not to give away your secret sauce, but like, what was it that was getting all these major retailers to want you guys so early? Yeah. So I think there's, there's two things to it is one, one is just the number of retailers you've got. So as I mentioned, we've, we've got literally two retailers in, in the U S that control 80, 90% of, of the market. So right. they have huge power. They're hugely tied into the big corporations and those sort of things. So unless you've got two, $3 million, unless you're sort of, you know, something like that, then they're not likely to take you on. They're going to sort of take things on. So that's the unfortunate thing is whilst yes, we are, focused on health, we have better diets, all of those things like that. I've, in my experience, and I think continues to be the case, it doesn't foster as much entrepreneurism, as much young CPG brands and things like that. There's a lot more weight given to the, the major companies and the incumbents and things like that. So um, that, that's a factor. I think the other factor is just the, the sheer population of the US here. And so you've got so many retailers, but also, you know, there's, the huge sizes of these as well. Like it's not like you've got, you know, two or three that are massive and then thousands of these little independents. You've got two, 300 sort of retailers that are 50, 60, you know, plus hundred chains and then stores and things like that, that have critical mass that can allow you to establish yourself. Like, you know, we could establish ourselves on, on 40 whole food stores and then build from there and sort of, if we can get 40, then we'll take it to this guy who's got 80. And then when we succeed there, we'll take it to this guy who's got 200. And then we can take it to, so you can actually get a foot into the market and build it there, which um, is very difficult in, in Australia. So I think it's just the way it's set up. And then the third point is the natural industry here. So we don't have that in Australia. We don't have these huge, this whole chain of, of people that only take natural products or this whole industry that is prepared to give products like us a go. So that, that definitely makes a difference as well. Gotcha. Yeah. No, I mean, that, that does all make sense. Did, um, was there like a, was there like a conversation where all of a sudden you kind of got the green light? Like, what? I guess the, the one piece I want to maybe better understand is initially launching into whole foods in the U S um, when you guys try to like sell in, were you, did you, were you kind of just explaining to them like your success you'd had in Australia and that that was what should like give you the green light and shelf. Like to me, that feels like such a huge gap. You guys jumped. That's so impressive. Yeah. Well, the other factor I should put into this is, is uh, three months into our launch there in Whole Foods, we decided to re rebrand and rechange all of our packaging. So we didn't originally launch as the good Chris company. We had a brand in, um, Australia called uh, Mami, um, and we'd sort of developed. So that was also a co-brand with with the co-packer, and sort of part of the agreement with them was, hey, maybe we could we could do a joint venture, and we could take this brand over and sort of do it in in the US t- together. And so we sort of started to get a bit of traction. We got originally these first forty stores with this Mami brand, um, and then it became quickly obvious that that wasn't resonating with with US consumers. And I would say to the retailers, hey, look, we're, we're a big brand in Australia. You know, we're a national brand in Australia. We could do this. And, and they'll say, that's fantastic. Come back to me when you're a national brand in America, and then we can talk about it. So, you know, yeah, to answer your question, they didn't care in the slightest about what we were doing in Australia. It had no effect at all. Um, so they said, look, you know, your, pack, your product's good, your concept's good, but your, your packaging and your brand is just not resonating. So we had to quickly, once again, make another decision and say, look, let's scrap this whole thing. Came up, came up with this idea of the Good Chris Company, um, and, and we we did a rebrand sort of three months after launch, relaunching. Uh, wow. After launching, had to dump all old packaging, switch over to what we did, um, and, and sort of go from there. And, and to be frank, it was one of the best things we we ever did. But um, yeah, so that that was on top of everything as well. Yeah, so just a few things going on. Yeah, yeah that's just right. a couple. Right. How did you guys come up with the name of the Good Chris Com- Company? I like the packaging, everything. I love. It resonated yeah. with me when I first saw it. Yeah, for sure. And this is our, this is another, so we then launched with one packaging and then uh, last year we've done this, not rebrand, but relook of our packaging, a new logo and things like that, which which has just done sent us to another level again. It's been amazing. So I'm really happy with, with what we've done. Um, but originally, um, just trying to think, we, we sort of were just chucking different names around and trying to think what this was. And I had this idea of, you know, and which was the issue, it was Mami was, was, was a, a brand somewhere but it just it didn't mean anything in the u.s was sort of the idea so that was well how do we come up with a logo that means something how do we have something that isn't just a good graphic or something that that just sits on your packaging that you can build equity around as you go 
could we try and come up with something that actually looked good but also helped sell and help get the idea across and, and we're sort of throwing around ideas and, and crisp is sort of a very UK sort of America sorry Australian type sort of word yeah. and we thought it sounded a bit fancy and things like that and we thought well you know we like this idea of, of good um, it's it's sort of it's not we're not Australians don't tend to talk themselves up too much so we don't want to sort of be too too sort of like oh we're the best chip company we're all of this but you know we're good you know so this sort of idea it sits in the middle there and and you know those three pillows that we talked about so we said well what, what about the good Chris company and we all none of us believed that that we would be able to get to trademark or that it would be possible but we thought look let's just put it in and see and, and amazingly it, it was and so we we locked that down and we didn't even sort of think twice about anything else and just ran with that so um, it was just sort of that was the process and a bit of good luck having it available. Love it. No, sometimes it's what it comes down to, right? A little bit of luck, like you said at the beginning, <laughs> a little bit of, uh, you know, right place, right time. That's sometimes the biggest thing. No, that's really yeah. cool. Um, how has, um, so for you guys, it sounds like retail has been, you know, a major focus, a, a huge <laughs> avenue for growth. Um, have you, do you guys have a big e-commerce presence or has, you know, D2C, B2B, e-com, all that kind of world, uh, has that been something that you guys have focused on? And then like part two would be just like, what is, what would, what happened, I guess what happened with all of these channels during COVID in 2020? So curious on like how you yep. guys maneuvered through some of that. Sure. So, excuse me. <coughs> sorry, I guess I'm sorry. So, um, we're 90%, um, online but sorry in store versus versus online so it so dc has not been a big sort of part of us and part of that has been just scrambling you know we had such a great response from from physical retailers and just sort of trying to keep up with that and all that we sort of didn't you know sort of want to necessarily go into um, direct consumer just yet um but in end of 2019 as part of our rebrand we all redid our website and shopify and built it up and started to sort of make that a, a focus so we were starting off basically starting from scratch from from there so um thankfully we got in just before sort of COVID and that all ramped up so we weren't now trying to sort of do a website or something like that and miss the boat to some degree but we didn't really have anything there so it has been a really steep learning curve for us as we've tried to, to learn and to make it work um we had some issues around our packaging and breakages and things like that as well fairly early on as UPS drivers sort of just chucked our product yeah. around and it shakes inside the can and breaks up. And so that's been a challenge for us as well. So we've been, we're doing a lot of groundwork over, over the last year and getting a lot of things right. Um, when, you know, we're sort of five or more than that, 10X our D2C business in the last 12 months, as I say, oh, wow. starting from a from a very small small base, definitely. But yeah. that's growing and it certainly um, will become a larger part of our business. I think to some degree, it's always going to only be about 10% of our business. But as we grow bigger, that 10% will you know represent millions of, of dollars. Um, so it, it's a factor. It's something we're working on and, and, and we think there's a lot of opportunity as, as well as what we're doing sort of with our, our, our retail partners. So that's sort of where it is. And then, and then as a result with, with COVID, it's been a bit of a mixture. So COVID, sorry, a mixture of things that have helped us. So COVID has, has definitely been a, a tailwind behind us. People are at home, yeah. they're eating chips, they're transferring their purchases from sort of, you know, 7-Eleven or the deli bar or whatever, and, and buying in, in store and grocery, which is predominantly where we are. So like everyone, we saw those big spikes in, in March and, and that sort of continued. And then, just after that, we, we launched our new packaging. And that's been the one-two punch, to be frank, that that's sort of done it. And our packaging has really then catapulted us from, from there as well. So we've had more people looking for snacks. And then in that environment, our new packaging has stood out. So we've had more people picking us off the shelf. And then our quality of product has meant that we've had more people going back to sort of buying us again. And, and those three sort of things has resulted where, you know, Two three hundred percent up on on last year um, wow. of our business, and and month on month we're continuing to sort of grow, and so that we're seeing that it's, it wasn't a COVID spike and then it sort of come back. It wasn't a packaging spike and then gone back to normal. We're, we've been fortunate where that's continued to baseline has has just continued organically to to grow and and to increase. So um, 
you know, it's been a difficult year for a lot of people and, and we're very obviously sympathetic of, of, of that and understanding, but sort of specifically for our business, it, it has been, it has been a good year. Yeah. Congratulations. That's exciting to hear, you know, especially when, you know, a lot of brands aren't doing well. It's great to see the ones that are doing well in this whole environment. Um, with, you know, the, it sounds like explosive growth, lots of distribution. Um, how, how big is the company now? Like how big headcount wise are you guys at this point? Yep. So we, um, for a long time, there's just a couple of us. Um, so we're now, uh, we hired another VP of operations last year. So that was our latest hire, which brought us to five people. Um, and then actually at the moment, we're now put out an ad, we're looking for another sales uh, person. So there, there's six of us. So we're still a relatively lean uh, team. So we sort of rely, we have a great uh, broker network. We have great sort of partners that help us, that allow us to sort of, um, you know, still be in, you know, nearly 10,000 grocery stores, but not needing to have uh, as many staff. But um, we're starting now to build that out and, and help to continue that growth. Yeah, no, that sounds awesome. I mean, that's pretty impressive to have that kind of distribution and have such a lean team that must go to show the hard work that you guys are all putting in. That's that's pretty wild. We do have a good team. We have an awesome, everyone says it, but I definitely feel that we have an amazing team, which is, which is, makes all the difference. The people, man, that's, I feel like that's always the most important thing. Um, No, that's exciting. So you guys, um, correct me if I'm wrong, you have four flavors today? Uh, We we have some more, so we launched some more. So um, original and sour cream are our sort of OG. So they're, they're the first two that we launched with. Uh, then we launch another three. So we have Outback Barbecue, uh, Sea Salt and Vinegar, and Aged White Cheddar. Wow, um, nice. So they're out. Um, and then we have, so they're in our larger 5.6. And then we have like a 1.6 ounce smaller sort of snack packs. We do that in original. And then we brought out some multi-packs and things like that. But but the five five core flavors at this time. Love it. And so what's the, and you don't have to give anything away. Obviously, this is what I was yep. talking about before we were going. But um, what is the like, I mean, it sounds like you guys have just been hitting the ground running. You guys are growing like crazy. And this is maybe something you don't think of too much, but what's the next you know, year, three, five years look like for the Good Crisp Company if you had a guest today? We think about all of those things a lot. Um, so it, for sure, it's come back to it. Like, what are we as a company? What are we as, as a brand? And I don't see us being, a, hey, we're a platform brand. We can take the Good Crisp Company all over the store and all of those things like that. Um, that works for a, a lot of brands. But personally, I think... Um, you know, what do we actually bring value for? Like we've seen it where we've been able to provide a really good product and we've seen retailers and consumers respond to that. So how do we sort of re- replicate that? So for me, I think, okay, our, our core sort of demographic at the moment is families, is is kids five to 10 are the major sort of uh, eaters of, of canister chips. So we've got that core market. Um, can we can we maybe bring in some other more more premium flavors potentially that bring in that older demographic or those people that have, you know, millennials that have moved away from canister chips, can we sort of bring them back into the category there and, and do that? So we've got some ideas around that. Um, and then we've thought, well, are there other potential products in, in canisters maybe that hit our market that, that could be of, of interest for our consumers as well? And so we're exploring a couple of options there. So I think we're always going to be in the snack aisle. We're always going to hit that core sort of demographic, but um, maybe there's some other things we can, we can do under the good Chris company. Love it. Yeah. So really keep focusing in on, on chips, yep. on what you're good yep. at and, and kind of drilling down deep into that. That's awesome. It's funny. Honestly, that's not, I, I would say, and you, you probably have known this just from your you know Australian business, but I feel like so many brands today want to be the, you know, platform brand. I feel like it's like the, that's like now it's like the new kind of cliche thing to, to not cliche. It's probably, probably a little bit of a generalization, but you know, it seems like so many young brands want to be the, they want to be all over the store. Yeah, and I think there's a couple of factors. I mean, and I sympathise as well. We're we're an investor-backed company, and 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 there's pressure. There's pressure to continually bring really high returns, to continually you know double your business every year, or bring in substantial growth. And and some of the easiest ways to do that is just to keep launching new flavours and new products, and step out. And then as you start to cannibalise, you realise that process doesn't work anymore. So all right, let's try and launch some new products over here where we won't cannibalize and and so I, I can understand sort of the mindset behind it and and equally as well a lot of brands do transfer over really well and there's some great success stories there but it can be a really difficult uh challenge 
And so for us, we think, no, let's, let's know what we do really well and just go really deep and really just focus on that. And as I said, Pringles is a, a billion dollar brand and they just do yeah. canister chips. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of area still for us to cover. Definitely. Do you have any suggestions for, you know, young entrepreneurs or just any entrepreneur out there that, you know, wants to start a food brand? You've, you know, you've, you've had a, uh, a very unique way of coming to market in the U.S., Specifically, like, I think it'd be interesting to get your perspective on, um, you know, bootstrapping versus raising money. Yep. Do you have any suggestions or perspectives for people as they think about, you know, starting a business? Yeah, I think particularly on that bootstrap to raising money thing, I think it's a combination of both. Like, I think particularly in CPG, particularly nowadays as well, the market shifted sort of post WeWork and all of those things that there's not as much money slosh. I suppose the money's there, but it's it's not as sort of just being dealt out as, as freely. So you have to have some proof of concept. You have to bootstrap something. You have to get out there and have a viable product and show sales and show velocity, show good margins, all of those things before you can even, even look at venture capital. So it's not sort of a either raw situation. I think it's just a stage situation. You have to bootstrap to start. You have to build up a concept. You have to do the farmer's markets. You have to do those, you know, whether for us it was 40 sort of California stores, but whatever it is for you, if it's, you know, one or two local independents, whatever, that's part of it. I think what does make things a bit easier for people these days is the D to C model. And, and that sort of, you know, once in a lifetime sort of, we just, skipped over the last, you know, the last 10 years and have already arrived at what D2C is now. So yeah. I think that's a big opportunity to focus. That said, it comes with its own challenges. It's not, it's not like, oh, I'll put a website up and now I can suddenly sell to everyone. No one's randomly typing in thegoodchriscompany.com to see what comes up. Like 100%. it costs me a lot of money to get them to come to my <laughs> site and buy. And so, yes, I can charge more because it's direct to consumer, but it, it's a little bit of a fallacy, you know, that the margins are, are not necessarily there because there's a lot more costs involved in it as, as well and advertising and things like that. So I think, but still it's a good place to start. You can build a community, you can niche down. That's something that uh, I've learned over the last year or two, sort of when we started, we, we said, right, you know, let's pick some attributes for gluten-free, right? Let's go after our gluten-free market and really do that. And, and we, we, we grew up, we had a great, Instagram following our engagement was awesome and all those things. And then I started to think, well, you know, we're, we're not just for gluten-free, we're for everyone. We should be targeting everyone. And we started to really broaden our approach and that. And we saw our engagement, we saw our, um, our CAC and everything like that really start to, or to, to our engagements go down and our costs to go, to go up. And we realized that y you need to niche. So yes, we can still appeal, appeal to everyone, but slice that up into niches and find that audience, find those people that are passionate about you and build that story. And then once you do that, you can start to then look for some VC funding, whether that's friends or family and, and thing like that and go from there. There are brands that do without VC funding and, and I could probably list them off, you know, maybe one on one hand, one company sort of there in, I assume you're in, in Chicago, Chomps is an amazing example of, of that in, in their Better For You jerky. And I look up to yeah. those guys and in awe of what they've been able, able to do with sort of the resources that they have. But they're few and far between, I think. And so it's not impossible, but I think realistically, just CPG is incredibly expensive and, and to capitalize on growth and to do it properly, I can't see many ways of doing it without funding, to be frank. Yeah, no, I mean, it makes sense. That was a great overview. That's a great advice for anybody who wants to get into the industry or not, um, or, you know, get started. Uh, so thank you for that. That's, that's, that's really great. And it is, it's a, it's a expensive complex. There's like so many, what I think is so interesting is there's so many different ways to go about it. Um, you know, like RX, for example, we built a B2B and uh, B2C and really e-commerce beast and yep. then that kind of unlocked distribution we had the you know the big boys wanting us at that point but it's cool yep. to hear your story i mean there's other ways to do it there's not one way to get into it uh, and i think that's why this industry is so interesting it is and, and not to and i guess the flip side is not to scare everyone else about all the negatives the positive is is i've never been in an industry that is so giving and opening and understanding and all those things and so much willingness to help um, individuals as well and so there's a lot of pitfalls there's a lot of ways of doing it but there's a lot a lot of people that are willing to tell their story and to help and to be 
a frenemies even to some degree, but mostly yeah. just sort of, hey, look, you're doing it. This is what worked for us. Try these guys. Have you thought about this? And that you, it wouldn't be possible to, to get to, to survive in this industry either without that. So as much as there's all the challenges, the offside of that is there's so much support and help and infrastructure. It's incredible. And, and that makes it um, all possible, I think. Definitely. No. And, and to build on that, I appreciate you taking the time to do this because this is, this is, you know, you're given time today to make the connection and have this conversation. It's, it's been great. I think, um, yeah, I've worked in, you know, essentially the three different companies I've worked at have been three completely different industries. And I will, I'm agreeing with you, the, the CPG industry, especially food is just, I don't know, people are just willing to talk to each other, help each other. You, yeah. I think you, it's, it's one of the few industries where people realize at some point that, uh, you know, more than one person's going to win. You look at a grocery store, there's so many brands. So, you know, if you have a good product and it, it's something you believe in, you have good people, it's, you know, then it comes down to a lot of hard work. D- definitely. And as well, I think it's also about the industry winning. Like I think people look at it as an industry as a whole, as opposed to sort of me winning. Like yeah. if, if natural foods wins, America wins, we all win to some degree. Right, right, yeah. it, whether my brand is sort of a winner of that per se or not, but if I can boost you up and, and overall you can help sort of improve the diet and improve people and improve life in America, well, well that's an amazing thing as well. So th- that's one of the great things about this as well. Yeah, I totally agree. That's awesome. All right. I know we're, we're getting close to time. So I wanted to, I ask a few questions to every founder on here that I'd love to ask you. Um, one being, uh, and maybe also with something different that we haven't heard on here before because of your background and, and where you grew up. But if you had to gift, I always lead with book. So if you had to gift, you know, your favorite book, it can, if you don't have a book, if you're not a reader, it could be a podcast or, you know, some other source of knowledge, what would that be for the audience? That's a, that's an interesting one. At the moment, actually, so I have a, uh, a Christian faith and I've been reading through Proverbs one, one, like oh, yeah. as part of that and just looking at that from a business perspective. And it's actually been really amazing. There's actually huge amounts of um, advice and, and things that are so applicable in, in business and, and doing things ethically in the right way and, and for the long term and things like that. So that's one that springs to mind. So I've been looking at that sort of uh, each month. So that I think is a lot of wisdom in that. Love it. That's, that's one we have not had in here before. So that's great. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, this is one of my favorite questions. This is a little more tactical. So um, obviously, you know, you're leading a company. Uh, there's tons of things on your plate. I'm sure you're also married, you have kids. So I can only imagine the amount of just things that you need to get done in a given day. Plus you have big, broad goals, I'm sure for the company. Um, what tools do you use to you know set goals accomplish daily tasks are you a pen and paper kind of person do you use apps just love to ask like how you you get your shit done yeah so fundamentally i'm a pen and paper person i'm trying to work on that so i find evernote to be um a a lot more helpful particularly i mean it's not so i've gone back to pen and paper now because i can't get out and about as much and i'm always at my desk and things like that but particularly out and about and traveling and things like that, you forever don't have the piece of paper or the pen. So Evernote for me has been just a more high tech version of pen and paper to be, to be essential. So I'm big on lists. I make a lot of lists. I cross things off. There's that sort of good feeling of crossing off, but it just helps to keep things organized. I always have random ideas popping into my head and and then are quickly gone. So if I can jot them down, that's helpful. So I'm not overly, Technical, I like tech and all of that, but um, for me, I think that's just sort of been one of the biggest things that's helped me. Love it. Yeah, I know. There's something about pen and paper. I Last year, I really got back into, like, I, I don't know if ever heard of it. It's called, like, bullet journaling. I tried that for yeah. a while. I use something now called a full focus planner. There's something to me about writing it down on paper and yeah. checking it off that's invaluable. It takes a little more time, but I feel like you have you you can prioritize better. I, I agree with that. I think, personally, I'm, I'm quite dyslexic, so sort of getting anything too technical is, is difficult. So just sort of getting something down to at least I remember it and adjust things off and things like that. I find it's just whatever's the quickest and easiest way to do that. Right. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. That's fantastic. I totally agree. Um, the last question and the most important, how can people follow you? How can people find the good crisp company and how can people get involved with the brand? Definitely. Well, uh, Instagram, the good Chris company, um, is our handle there. I'm on, uh, LinkedIn, um, and, uh, Matthew Parry or Matt Parry, probably 
typically it is, but you can you can find me there. Um, definitely, we have to actually I just got onto Clubhouse, so I'm doing some more of that. Oh, so nice. if, you're, if, if you're on had, there, there so you go. Funny enough, out. I just had a, a coworker that sent me that I'd never heard of it before, right. and he was sending me stuff about podcasts, and I was like, oh, this is really cool. Yeah, it is. It's it's like I said, it's a cross between yeah. Uh, a never-ending podcast, a sort of um, talkback radio to some degree, a modern version of talkback radio, and sort of then being able to sort of eavesdrop in, into awesome panels. So it's it's pretty good. I have it on most days and do things. So um, I'm usually there to so hit me up there or, or on LinkedIn. Awesome. Very cool. Well, Matt, thank you so much for the time. This has been fantastic. I will uh, add all the links to the good Chris company and um, get all those in the show notes and um, hopefully people check it out and good luck with, you know, 2021 and the growth of the, the brand and I, we should stay in touch and hopefully everything goes well this year. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. And definitely we will be keeping in touch and make sure you send me your address so I can get some more product to you. And all that right. goes to, to anyone. Just hit me up if you need samples. <laughs> there we go. Love it. I'm sure people will. Awesome. Well, Matt, thank you so much. And uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks. Awesome. Thanks.